and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection of faith and reason, true intersectionality. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here, and you can email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. That's what helps drive at least a third of the show, so please send those in. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, magiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and spitzercenter.org, all put together by our own Mr. Universe. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and the EW10 On Demand page. And while you're at it, check out our other programs on demand, a new one that we just put up there, Mother Teresa, No Greater Love, a really wonderful program. Special documentary pays tribute to Mother Teresa's vision of serving Christ through the poor. And all of this is free. Did I mention it's free and it's on demand? And you can just check that out on our website. This week, the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. We will continue there. The new book of the month for May is Simple Steps to a Stronger Marriage. Now, it's written by Dr. Ray Garendi, so you know they have to be simple steps. Uh, but uh, you can check that book out. Dr. Ray, he's always a lot of fun, and it's an interesting read. And I'm Doug Keck. We'll turn right now to Father Spitzer out on the West Coast. As I said, again, our, our official Mr. Universe himself. If you'd like to kick things <laughs> off with a prayer, Father, that'd be great. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you today to send your Holy Spirit down upon us, Doug, myself, our whole audience and staff, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, and Saint Damien of Molokai, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. It's always great to start things off this way. Let's take a look at some of the latest stories out there. Uh, this was a story, and I'm happy to see, when I first heard this story, I was going to bring it up on the show, uh, the demands from the federal government had just come out, but now they backed off it. But I figured it was an interesting story anyway. Federal government regulators yeah. backed off their demands that a Catholic hospital get this, extinguish its chapel candle after the Oklahoma hospital lawyers argued that the client's religious freedom was being violated. So they were telling them the Department of Health and Human Services had ordered that the St. Francis Health System in Oklahoma snuff out one of its hospital sanctuary candles after its contractors responsible for accrediting the hospital deemed that it represented a fire hazard. And the hospital group was informed <laughs> that it would lose its accreditation if it did not comply. I think it, uh, it made them look very bad, and quickly that was reversed. And the sanctuary candle is allowed, allowed to be there, but, you know, this is the kind of stuff. The, the world is collapsing, you know, bridges are falling over, but we're concerned about sanctuary candles in Catholic chapels and hospitals. Uh, 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 yeah. No, I, I think it speaks for itself. I right. don't need to say too much more. Right. It, it, it brings <laughs> Spells to idiocy right. yeah, with right. a capital I. <laughs> right. The, the classic line, you know, uh, you know, straining at gnats and swallowing camels. That seems what we seem to be doing oh, in, yeah, exactly. in the world today. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and another story inside the church I thought was interesting. New York Archdiocese is investigating a Catholic parish that's, that has a display that says God is trans. 
the Church of St. Paul the Apostle in Manhattan, which is kind of a notorious parish, surprised parishioners when it displayed the three painting work by a particular artist, which depicts the spiritual journey of the LGBTQ plus person. This was reported by Newsweek. The display is described as a queer spiritual journey in three steps, sacrifice, identity, and communion. Uh, spokesman uh, for the Archdiocese told Newsweek that the Archdiocese was unaware of the exhibit until alerted by the media and was looking into it. But, uh, you know, it's one of these ones where people go, yeah. Why, well, who thought this yeah, was a I good know. idea? But, you know. Yeah. How does this help the mission of God, the kingdom of God, the Catholic Church, the teaching of the Catholic Church? I mean, how does this help anything? Uh, you know, it, it's just uh, unbelievable. Um, but um, I'm not surprised right. uh, that it happened. And of course, in good old New York. Right, absolutely. I, I, you know more about that fine I know city it well. than I Yes, do. I know it well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked, shocked to find this going on in New York. Yes. Uh, uh, positively shocking. <laughs> That's right, I can't believe it. Here's, a, here's, an, here's an interesting story. I wanted to just get your take on this. Uh, an mm -hmm. article came out, an announcement came at the end of an era for the Sisters of Charity, speaking of New York, in New York. They will no longer accept new mm -hmm. members, are now on what's called a path to completion. I never heard of a path to completion, but apparently they are particularly on it. Um, even though they're, you know, oh, okay. they have more than 200 years, you know, and of course you've got Elizabeth Ann yeah. Seton, uh, I guess uh, oh, yeah. they didn't get, or they're not getting vocations. So they've decided yeah. that they're on some path to completion. And there's a quote in here that says, when something like this is looming, you think, what did we do wrong? Uh, I'm sure there are many times when we questioned all those changes that we made back in the 70s. Ha-ha, the habit, leaving schools, going uh -huh. to various ministries. But when you stop to think, you recognize that each person who did any of these things was doing it in faith, trying to read the signs of the time and do what they were called to do, and that can't be wrong. And I thought it was interesting because in some ways it's indicative of what we saw happen obviously for those of us who were around in the certainly in the late 60s 70s into the 80s yeah. with these changes but oh, yeah. one of the things is you know again you can acknowledge that many of these people made these decisions in good faith but the yeah. results are so bad scientifically what's your obligation your obligation is to go tell people this doesn't work yeah, yeah. The I, the problem, of course, is, and we see this all the time, is that um, even though you're trying to respond to the signs of the times, you really aren't responding to the signs of the times. Because if you were, you would see that you know this precipitous drop in vocations didn't happen one day. Mm -hmm. It's been a gradual decline over the course of not just years but decades, and still. They have put their foot on the accelerator of all those changes, kept the same st strategy that they kept as they were doing it. And so, you know, I'm not going to say that, that they didn't do it in good faith, but I do question the prudence of it. Mm. I do question, you know, following through on a losing strategy, uh, the, the definition of insanity, according to Einstein, right. continuing to do uh, what clearly is failing, expecting a different result. Right. And, of course, uh, that's what happened here. Right. And... Um, I'M SORRY TO SAY THAT uh, IT HAS LED TO THE PATH TO COMPLETION AND 
Um, that's all we can say at this juncture. Right. It's, uh, right. you know, it's going to happen, by the way, to a lot of other religious orders right. uh, that uh, made those uh, big uh, moves in the 19, uh, late 60s and 1970s. So uh, right. you can pretty much see this coming on a variety of fronts all over the United States. Absolutely. And, and the hope, the springtime, is, is the younger orders that are getting those vocations that are out oh, there, the Nashville Dominicans, there Mother are Sumptas, lots of them. Sisters, the Sisters yeah. of Life, just to name a couple of the more well-known sisters. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. There are about uh, 20 of those uh, orders. And then there are a lot of orders that are kind of just doing very, very well, who are not necessarily new orders, but they mm -hmm. are also uh, drawing in vocations. Right. But all of them, almost to the order, um, uh, you know, did not make the huge uh, significant changes in the late 60s and 70s that right. uh, the sister that was the spokesman for the Sisters of Charity, were, um, she was noting. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. You, you've got to keep your eye on your charism mm -hmm. many times and, and yep. not have what's called we call you it business. And you also have to keep your... Uh, on the chart, mission creep, you know, happens, right, as they call it in yeah. uh, sometimes in the military or in business. So, right, yeah. you have to keep your Absolutely. eye on Jesus, too. Right, right, right. Yeah. That, too, very much so, and the church. There you go, okay. So here's, uh, since you ran a, a university, a major university, yeah. uh, and, and, and helped to bring them into being a basketball powerhouse, uh, I figured I would uh, bring up this story here about Harrison sure. Harrison but Butker. Uh, he was speaking. I oh, guess. Oh, I love that statement. Okay, from Georgia Tech. He was at Georgia Tech, and he's yeah. a two-time Super Bowl champion guy. He's very out front about his Catholic faith. Uh, he told the students that their hard work might land them a very successful career, but that would not be enough to make them happy. But in the end, this is his quote, no matter how much money you attain, none of it will matter if you're alone and devoid of purpose, end quote. He goes, I can offer one yep. controversial antidote that I believe will have a lasting impact for generations to come. Get married, start a family, he said. He goes on to say, yeah, I know. Did you hear the crowd in the background when he said it? The, the, the kids in the, in the audience started cheering him right, when right. he said, get married and have children. So, hey, maybe something's, uh, something is happening. Right, Sorry, right. go ahead, Doug. No, <laughs> no, exactly. That, uh, and they yeah. said he was praised for his game women kicks, but he noticed all of this happiness is temporary. And the truth is, none of these accomplishments mean anything compared to the happiness I have found in my marriage and in starting a family. Amen. That's right. And he went on to say even that it was his trips to the Catholic uh, um, Student Center um, mm -hmm. at uh, Georgia Tech right. that really kind of helped him stay on the path and uh, that he was grateful for it, that his faith was part of his life. He mentioned God right. several times during the talk, though he was very diplomatic and, uh, you know, very much... Uh, you know, um, you know, kind of, you know, didn't play it down, but he was low key about mm -hmm. the theme. Uh, but he certainly also spoke right. to his Catholicism uh, in the Catholic Student Center, right. and I just thought, you know, he was wonderful because, you know, the, the idea that he, he, <laughs> he says, yeah, I got some a lot of Super Bowl rings, mm -hmm. uh, but it's this ring, and he po you know points to his right. uh, wedding ring, you know, is this ring that uh, that really counts in my life. This is the long term purpose and so forth. So I, I thought it was a great talk and uh, right. not bad for a guy who's done some Super Bowl 
uh, championships and and won some games by right. by uh, kicking uh, field goals. Right, <laughs> Ab absolutely, and it's important for for people I think who have worldly success when that's when yep. it, when they can to speak out about their faith like that. You know, it's easy you for bet. people to dismiss. You know, well, this guy's a loser. So, uh, yeah, I know he had to cling mm -hmm. on to his faith because uh, he couldn't make it or something. <laughs> but when you have somebody successful yeah. who's been through it, or other people <laughs> who've been through it, and they turn around and say, "Listen, you got to understand, it's not what you think it is, yeah. and you better find something that you can Absolutely. hold on to." Right. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, all the worldly success in the world, when it just leaves you empty. And alienated and lonely, hmm. you know that great insight of Saint Ignatius of Loyola. You know, I would think about all these fantasies about, you know, being a knight and rescuing these ladies hmm. and dueling and winning and being a heroic soldier, and they would just leave me empty and alienated. And then I would just think about being a saint or think about, you know, following the way of, you know, Saint Benedict mm -hmm. or something. And, and wow, I, you know, that kind of, all of a sudden I was filled with a peace and mm -hmm. with a sense of, uh, of, of purpose that, that just stayed with me. And just that, you know, look at those deep spiritual feelings where the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit is really taking hold of the heart. And there you'll discover, you know, too, what's going to bring you peace in the long run and what's not. Right. Just when you feel that emptiness, don't go out and get a scotch. You know, when you <laughs> feel the emptiness, start thinking, I wonder why. And uh, start thinking, maybe, maybe I need God in my life. Mm -hmm. When I, you start feeling the loneliness, the alienation. Mm -hmm. Of course, I know I'm preaching to the choir here on EWTN, but nevertheless, this is something we should tell people who aren't watching EWTN, as you were just saying, just witness with our own words that right. when they do feel that sense of emptiness, alienation, right. you know, purposelessness, malaise, and dread, hey, right. God is the solution, the only solution. Right. Turn to Him in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. That reminds me, I don't have the story here, but I did see the story the other day where this, this gentleman who was known as being a TikTok dad, uh, apparently he made these videos yeah. that were very popular uh, you know, giving his daughter a hard time or whatever. He was the perfect TikTok dad. Yeah. Well, he just committed suicide. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's yeah. and those are the kinds of things you say. But he was the perfect TikTok dad. What happened? Yeah, yeah. What happened? Well, you know, as they say, all, all those things may be giving you a lot of temporary, uh, uh, you know, what I might call jolts of uh, of success and ego, mm -hmm. but jolts of ego and success in the long run don't mean a, a hill of beans if fundamentally underneath mm -hmm. you're just filled with malaise and dread and emptiness and loneliness. Right. We need God. He's the only one that can fill in the void right. and because he's made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. There you go, St. Augustine. Uh, I'm sure you read yeah, this already, <laughs> which is uh, Bishop Polk uh, <laughs> Coakley's pastoral letter, right, that came out on gender dysphoria, mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. on, on the unity of the body and soul accompanying those experiencing gender dysphoria. I just wanted to read a couple of, I mean, it's a wonderful sure. document, but he said, in Guys, our oh yeah, he's, yeah, go ahead. 
No, I said he's a wonderful, wonderful man and thinker. Right. Uh, but go ahead. Sorry, Doug. Right. <laughs> In our present cultural moment, we are experiencing the rise of the transgender movement, which tragically attempts to promote and normalize transgenderism. Pope Francis has described gender ideology as one of the most dangerous ideological colonizations. He asks, why is it dangerous? Because it blurs differences and the value of men and women. Uh, Coakley goes on to say, the promotion and societal acceptance of transgenderism as a movement is witnessed by the topics increasing media coverage, uh, growing transgender characters in films, political efforts regarding this ideology. As a cultural force, it's been particularly effective among young people with the number of youth identifying transgender has doubled in the past five years. He goes on to make the point, and I wanted you to comment on this, this fact especially, transgender movement is rooted in a modern form of dualism, where the body and soul, mind, spirit are separate realities. In this view, the human person is the immaterial inhabitant of a physical host, a material body, therefore can be manipulated to the service uh, of that soul. So. He also goes on to say the movement is simply yeah. put an evil infecting our world. Go ahead. No, it's very true, and uh, I do think it is a modern form of dualism, and yeah. I think uh, as people know, dualism is where you separate the soul and the body as if they're two entities, yeah. and in the platonic form of uh, dualism, uh, the soul is kind of imprisoned by the body. So the soul then can just say, well, I don't like my body, and I'm going to make it as accommodating as possible while it's imprisoning me. And that is the underlying metaphysics of this movement, mm -hmm. is that the body is the inconsequential, uh, manipulatable uh, sort of appendage that is imprisoning uh, the soul, my, my mentation, my subjectivity, that really is what counts. But of course, um, as we know from uh, thousands of years of, of entertaining dualism unsuccessfully, even platonic dualism, uh, especially Cartesian dualism and all the other kinds of dualism out there, we've seen that this has never been a successful um, uh, kind of philosophy because every time you try to you know, take your body, make it an ap a mere appendage and prison of the soul, uh, the body revolts mm -hmm. because it's so unified with the soul in our earthly condition. And we do have a soul. It's a soul that will survive bodily death. But we will, as Christians, we believe we'll have a glorified body that will take the place of our physical body, even though our soul can survive bodily death. And that embodiment is needed for our wholeness, our completion, mm -hmm. because that's the way the Creator made us. Mm -hmm. And you can see it when you start treating your body as an appendage, when you start manipulating it, you know, no question about it, the, hap the unhappiness effects will soon uh, arise. In fact, they will rise up against your soul. And that's why we see that the mortality rate uh, increases by a factor of three times for all purposes. Hmm. That means that fundamentally taking gender affirming therapy where you're doing hormone treatments, et cetera, that this is all right off the bat you get a tripling of the mortality rate, which they have not been able to bring down in 50 years. It is also, uh, the, the revolt is when you, and you actually take your body and you, you do a, a 
basically a sexual reassignment surgery. Mm -hmm. um, when you do this, uh, then the soul doubly revolts, uh, uh, you know, because of course it, it's, it's uh, unity with the body is so disrupted. It's so uh, over the top of uh, almost like a, a pounding uh, of the unity between body and soul. That's why the suicide rates go up by 20 times, not 20%. 20 times. So, I mean, uh, uh, this is really, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a very, very um, concerning, um, uh, you know, turn of events. And that dualism is not only destroying the individuals that are in it, it's destroying the culture because this is just one manifestation of a harmful dualism that continues unabated and, and seemingly uh, without any um, uh, kind of uh, cultural uh, restriction whatsoever. But at, at least the, the thought that in Great Britain and in Sweden and in Finland, right. now you have a reversal, uh, an official reversal even, not just by the uh, healthcare administrations of these countries, by the government themselves, that they're no longer going to support gender-affirming therapy and certainly not sexual reassignment surgery because, as they say, quote, the risks are far greater than the benefits. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I, I leave it at that. I think Co uh, Archbishop Coakley is right mm -hmm. on the marker. Right. It is a form of dualism. It is a destructive dualism, and it's just hitting, if I might use, mix the metaphor purposely, at the heart of the soul. Mm -hmm. And of course, the reason uh, you know, for it is because that dualism, once you take that body and you wrench it out of its natural identity mm -hmm. and unity with the soul, you can just expect that it's going to revolt against you. Right. And it does. Right. I mean, that's the increase in right. suicides, the increase in mortality rates, et cetera. Right. And just as a regular person, you'd say, well, if the body wasn't important, why is bodily resurrection such a central fact of our faith, our Lord's yeah. bodily resurrection, yeah. the fact that there will be a bodily resurrection. Right. Well, I mean, that's because the Lord knew how he created us. Right. And that's, and of course, I believe that Jesus Christ is really the Son of God. So it doesn't surprise me in the least right. that the Son of God should propose the bodily resurrection of all of us in glory mm -hmm. uh, because uh, uh, he knows how he created us. Remember, all things were made in him and through him, you know, and so we can pretty much know that he knows. Mm -hmm. And of course, the glorified body needs to be part of the resurrection because without it, we are alienated. We were created to be a body-soul unity and essentially a, a, bod a glorified body-soul unity ultimately and not a disembodied soul. Right. Let me ask you a question here, not too far afield, but, yeah. you know, sometimes the argument comes in on the transgenderism. They, people say, well, there's biological men and women, but we're not talking biology. We're here talking about gender, which to me, when I was a kid, gender had something to do with learning English. But anyway, uh, you know, we had gender, you know, right? I mean, that's where, that's the only time yeah. you ever saw the word gender. And had learning to do with French English. and Spanish. Yeah. Right, right. When you were dealing with that in, in, in yeah. a language, right? But then people right. say, well, it's not the biological, but if it's not biological, why are you trying to impact the body with surgeries and hormones if it's simply uh, an identification situation? 
Well, I mean, you put your finger right on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course the body's important, and what's happening is in the gender dysphoria, right, the, you know, the, the, the poor patient, this is the victim, right? Uh, he's the one that's being sold the bill of goods that his anxiety level will decrease considerably once he is, quote unquote, the gender that he thinks himself to be. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, the, the point, of course, is it's the anxieties are not being caused by uh, the gender uh, dysphoria, uh, or by that, by uh, what might be called, a, uh, you know, a man being trapped in a woman's body or a woman being trapped in a man's body, the anxieties are really being caused by a series of other things: uh, sexual or physical abuse of the as a child, mm -hmm. uh, latent homosexual desires, and considerably also by an elevated level of anxiety in the household uh, by one or both of the parents. So when you combine those anxiety levels, uh, this can cause the dysphoria because of the way that the child, who is not a mature uh, individual with a, a well-developed frontal lobe, which makes judgments, that child begins to think, well, the reason I'm so unhappy and mom is so angry or dad is so angry and dissatisfied mm -hmm. is because I'm the wrong gender. If I were just a girl, then everything would be okay. Mom would like me better. The anxiety level in the house would change, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But uh, alas, we're not looking at those uh, anxiety levels and their true causes uh, anymore. Uh, we're basically now um, uh, trying to, uh, uh, to pin it down to a quick and easy sexual reassignment surgery, which is neither quick nor easy, and in the end result is utterly destructive, not only to the psyche or the soul, but could be destructive to the life of the individual when the suicide rate goes up by 20 times. Right, and as they say, sometimes follow the money. Let's go to some uh, questions. Uh, yeah, are, uh, well, that's uh, true, too. That, uh, that we yeah. got, too, before we hit the break in a few yeah, minutes. Sure. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, thank you for your many ways of evangelization to our world. I believe that the Shroud of Turin, you're familiar with that, I know, is truly the burial cloth <laughs> of Jesus. Every mention of Christ's yeah, crucifixion and depiction in the Holy Gospels, including Jesus' words and all other religious documentation, points to the nails in Christ's hands. However, the Holy Shroud of Turin points to direct evidence the nails were placed in Christ's wrists. Why is this fact never mentioned mm. or depicted in the Gospels or elsewhere? This is Steve. So this has to do with uh, with the nails in the yeah. hand or with the nails yeah. in the wrist. Yeah. Uh, uh, Steve, you know, when you're looking at the shroud, it is true that the protrusion wound is in the wrist, right at this little V here mm -hmm. in the back of the wrist. That is true. But uh, according to Frederick Zugabe, uh, you know, very good, uh, um, you know, pathologist and, um, and uh, hist uh, histopathologist, uh, b basically, he, um, you know, the sthenar furrow here, you know, that little curvature, mm -hmm. right, as you, uh, in your hand that you can follow mm -hmm. very clearly when you have your hand cupped a little bit, mm -hmm. that uh, sthenar furrow, um, it, the Romans actually put the nail uh, going into that, uh, into the palm right mm -hmm. here, and you can see that as it goes in at about a 16 degree angle down, it's following that thenar furrow. Mm -hmm. You can just uh, you do it, trace it with your finger yourself. Mm -hmm. And as it goes down that thenar furrow very easily, it comes out 
Mm. And this is the only wound we can see is the one pro protruding, the exit wound from the nail in the wrist. Mm. Now, the reason that the Romans did that was not only that the Theonophoro, you know, uh, you know, produced a very easy pathway for the nail to go down, but two other reasons. Once it comes out in this place, right at this V here in the wrist, once it comes out there, that's a good spot to uh, make the, the hand or the wrist adhere to uh, the actual wood of the cross. And furthermore, there's a big complex of nerves mm -hmm. right down in here, right at, uh, you know, at the base of the, of the hand, and you can see that that nail goes right through there so that every time that man is trying uh, in the shroud, and of course I believe, as you do, that it is uh, Christ Jesus, every time he tries to pull himself up to breathe, and that's what he has to do, the shock of, uh, you know, these nerves are going to just uh, really just kill him, you know, basically. I mean, the pain will be over overwhelming every time. So the Romans actually knew the best way to create exquisite torture mm -hmm. on these victims. And in, in the particular case, you can see that the nail mm -hmm. does go through the, uh, you can't see it, but you can figure that it does because the easy path, as Zugabi says, is for the nail to go down that path near the thinner furrow and come out the V side of the wrist, adhering the wrist uh, to the wood of the cross and causing maximal pain uh, for the person trying to elevate himself to breathe. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've got one quick question, if it's possible, related to the shroud in the next minute. So this is like uh -huh. our own version of our show, okay. The Catholic Blitz, okay? so. You got about a minute to answer <laughs> okay. this question, okay? Uh, dear Father Spitzer, okay. I've, I've heard that at the moment of Jesus' resurrection, immediately after the intense burst of UV, the Holy Shroud collapsed and passed through his body. Is this correct, Jim? Yeah, Jim, there's two actual uh, ways of, uh, of talking about uh, the radiation burst. Um, and there has to be radiation, right? Can't be chemicals, can't be scorching, can't be rubs, can't be vapors, can't be dyes, right? Has to be uh, radiation action at a distance for about 32 reasons, which I won't elucidate here. The main thing is what kind of radiation? Is it the strong burst of ultraviolet radiation? That is one very good theory. In that theory, the body will have to become mechanically transparent, that is to say spiritual, because the cloth, in order to get the pictures of the inside bones and the, like the backbone to the dorsal part and the uh, the uh, the uh, you know the bones in the hands relatively to, the, to relative to the flesh etc it has to penetrate the body a minimum of three sixteenths of an inch in the UV theory mm -hmm. in the particle theory the body of course also has to become transparent because uh, the, you know there's pictures of the inside of the body like the backbone and part of the ribs the hands bones, etc. Uh, so you, you've got to be able to get three sixteenths of an inch of penetration on the frontal and dorsal side. But the reason uh, for mechanical transparency in the particle radiation um, uh, theory is those particles are coming from a complete um, uh, nuclear disintegration of every single stable atomic nuclei in the body. That would be a, a, around seven octillion 
um, uh, uh, stable atomic nuclei simultaneously are going to uh, undergo atomic disintegration, which produces a low temperature nuclear reaction, a big bright light and a boom, but uh, most importantly, the, the flux, the neutron flux and the proton-deuteron flux of the heavy charged particles, uh, the proton-neutron uh, flux uh, and the proton-deuteron flux will cause the image to form and then the neutron flux will cause the blood to turn bright red, will strengthen the cloth, and a variety of other enigmas are explained. I favor the particle radiation hypothesis, but in both cases, radiation, an intense burst of radiation, of either particle radiation or UV, culminated ultraviolet radiation will be necessary. And the second thing is the body will have to turn spiritually trans, I mean spiritual, mm -hmm. mechanically transparent in order to get the images of the inside of the body in perfect three-dimensional proportionality to the flesh on the outside. So that's the brief blitz answer there you go. to your Outstanding, question. outstanding, Father. <laughs> With that, we're going to take a break. And if you have more you want to add to it, We'll, we'll talk about it when we come back. you, uh, you got to listen. Stay with us right here. Part two of Father Spitzer's Universe, just ahead. Appreciate you staying with us right here in Father Spitzer's universe. Our topic, the Holy Eucharist, we'll get to that momentarily. It's from Father's wonderful book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. He's always got new books coming out as well, which we'll be dealing with in the near future. But let's get to another question with Father Spitzer. Dear Father Spitzer, if evolution is true and the soul was inserted into beings roughly 60,000 years ago, does that not suggest that the human creatures who lived even just a generation before the soul was inserted, suffered those brutal times, grief, and every other kind of problem without any hope of eternal life. These type of questions have plagued my mind for over four decades, and this is Mark. Well, Mark, you know, that's a question, of course, I mm -hmm. can't determine either from science or from my faith, but I could, you know, venture forth an answer, uh, which is a pure Spitzerian theological opinion. Mm. Uh, the main thought I have, well, first of all, the, you know, if you don't have a soul capable of surviving bodily death, then the body is going to die. And um, remember, because they don't have a soul, they're probably not self-reflective mm -hmm. in the same way that human beings are self-reflective. So they're not going to be pondering death mm -hmm. like we do. They're not going to have a dread of death like we do. You know, it's sort of like when you see your dog, he, he kind of knows or she knows, you know, um, uh, that, uh, you know, time is short. Mm -hmm. They try to go sometimes into a room by themselves or a spot by themselves mm -hmm. and they just settle down they fall asleep and die but they're not under a huge amount of anxiety um, you know thinking oh my gosh this is it for me you know and so um, they they don't have that kind of what we call thematic um, self-reflective understanding of, of what death means so the idea of um, you know those kinds of beings having quote-unquote hope um, you know, is really pretty much not, not really true. I mean, I don't think they, they do have a sense of hope because 
They're not capable of that in the mm -hmm. same way. Now they have a, what we might call a lower level sense that we wouldn't call hope, but they have a lower level sense of anticipation. They might hear the can opener going and they go, oh, that squeak, that means food time. Mm -hmm. And what we call a Pavlovian uh, response, and that just basically is putting together uh, some information, the squeak with, uh, you know, the, the filling of the food, you know, getting the food, etc. Mm -hmm. And they do have that kind of understanding, but we call that perceptual ideas and practical understanding which is very different from conceptual ideas and theoretical understanding. So um, animals have the one, but they don't uh, have the other. Human beings obviously have mm -hmm. both practical and theoretical understanding. They also have perceptual and conceptual ideas. So um, because of that, I wouldn't feel too sorry uh, for the, um, you know, the people that died prior to human beings. Uh, who had a soul. The second thing also though is Paul has those notes that St. Paul, which are very difficult to, you know, understand fully what did he have in mind mm -hmm. in Romans uh, when he's talking about the, uh, um, you know, all of creation yearning or, you know, and groaning in anticipation. Uh, of the resurrection. What's he mean by that? And what's he saying about God's intention? Is he saying that God's intention is maybe to have some uh, kind of dogs or something in heaven or uh, some pre-human uh, beings in some fashion in heaven? I, I really don't know. But it could be because Paul does have that very full sense of what a resurrection would entail. And so uh, you can see, for example, a person like C.S. Lewis would more or less, you know, f you know, follow that kind of interpretation of Paul, right? So that, you know, at the resurrection, you know, you will have uh, sort of a non-reflective um, uh, non-ensouled creatures that might be brought into it. And then you have other people who just say, no, no soul, no resurrection. Mm -hmm. What did Paul mean? Uh, like I said, I, I really don't know. I, I just, I, I, you know, I, sometimes I look at those texts and I go, I think he really did mean that, uh, you know, there mm -hmm. might be dogs wagging their tails in heaven. And then sometimes I look at them and I go, no, nah, he really doesn't mean that. He, mm -hmm. he basically just, you know, is using a kind of an, a metaphor, an analogy to, to talk about, you know, God intends that everything have some form of, everything in, in, in creation is good and there's some form of it being fulfilled mm -hmm. through human resurrection. And what that entails, we just don't know. But Paul doesn't explain himself any further, and I know people, you know, try and pin me down, and I just go, <laughs> our church doesn't say, our science doesn't say, and I don't say. Right. I just uh, think it's possible, and that's right. where I can go. Well, whatever needs to be there for you to be perfectly happy, I'm assuming, is going to be there, right? Yeah, but that's <laughs> it, exactly. <laughs> so if tail wagon dogs are needed for that, uh, well, they'll probably be there. So, <laughs> sorry. Right, there's a famous Twilight Zone. I really Zone, do believe that that's famous true. Twilight Zone episode yeah. where, where the family dog protects the guy yeah. from taking the wrong turning and not going into hell and, and yeah. got him into heaven. So they say, Rod Serling said, make sure oh, when okay. you go, bring your family dog with you. So, who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> there you go. Now that's a little off the uh, the Catholic marker, but there interesting right. thought. Right, 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 right. <laughs> anyway, so uh, let's move into the book and, and dealing with the Eucharist in sure. our final uh, 15 minutes or so. And last time we were together, we were talking about the idea of the third gift, the transformation in the Lord's heart. Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And with that, you talk about the idea of one mm -hmm. living, one person living in another is the highest possible yeah. form of intimacy, far exceeding living with another. Mm -hmm. Jesus intended we enter into this yeah. highest possible intimate relationship with him by receiving him in his body and blood in the Holy Eucharist. Yep, I think that's exactly right. And, um, uh, you know, in a way, it is uh, so utterly transformative um, that maybe the best expression of it, I mean, John Henry Newman has some pretty good thoughts on that, mm -hmm. but um, St. Teresa of Avila, in her autobiography, um, I think it's around chapters 15 through 17, somewhere in that area. In any case, she actually does talk about how she, you know, when she receives communion, um, that she sometimes, like, the whole soul is taken up literally mm -hmm. into a unity with God that gives her like uh, ideas, you know, completely fashioned mm -hmm. without, you know, understanding having to, to sort of muddle its way through it. Uh, your, your faculty of understanding is just like it comes to her intuitively. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you start looking at that sort of thing, um, you know, I do think there's a lot of testimony. Uh, St. Ignatius had, you know, at Lestorda had some something similar uh, to that happening. He was very desirous of receiving communion daily, uh, you know, for Jesuits, etc. And so you can see that, um, that um, it's there definitely um, in the saints. But, um, you know, I like to think of it more like if you're around somebody and you're living with them and you actually like the person you're living with, Mm -hmm. and you really uh, can say, well, you love the person that you're living with, they rub off on you. And so you start picking up their mannerisms, and they start picking up your mannerisms, and, and it kind of like there's a, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a symbiosis, really, mm -hmm. that does occur, uh, you know, a kind of a sympathetic uh, reaction uh, where empathy begins to transform the person, and you actually become you know, in a most kind of a co-natural event, mm -hmm. you start becoming kind of like them. And uh, now imagine what it would be if you're living not with them in the same house. Let's suppose you're living in them and they're living in you with that kind of intimacy. Mm -hmm. The transformation into the heart and the goodness and the ways of the Lord is very profound indeed. Now, of course, uh, I'm not at the level of any St. Teresa of Avila or St. John Henry Newman, mm -hmm. but I can tell you one thing. If you receive Holy Communion enough times, mm -hmm. as I've told the story here on the program, it does change you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was in college, uh, you know, and I was a pretty, you know, brute facts, utilitarian, greedy, 
egotistical kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And um, I must say, you know, I don't know how my friends tolerated me, but they did. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that as I started going to daily mass, that's another story, but I started mm -hmm. going, and when Lent was over, I kept going. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed that about uh, seven, eight months later, people would start saying, Spitzer, you're changing, and I go, in what respect? Mm -hmm. Well, you seem to be nicer, more respectful, mm -hmm. and you don't have to bust everybody's chops all the time. <laughs> and of course, I said, wow, you know, I, I think I'm the, still the same chop-busting guy I used to be. And they go, no, you're, you're, well, you are, but less so. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting thought that somehow he's kind of wheedling into me, that somehow by me listening to him and his word and receiving him in the Eucharist, you know, he's getting to me, he's rubbing up on me. I'm starting to be more like him. And of course, that intimacy of Holy Communion, I mean, I was kind of sometimes the last to know how profoundly that um, receiving Holy Communion was affecting me. But it was really affecting me. And um, I, you know, uh, uh, you know, my dissertation director told me once, Dr. Paul Weiss, a uh, very uh, wonderful man, brilliant, brilliant metaphysician. Anyway, he says to me, he says, I'm gonna tell you something, Spencer. He says, you know, it's, it's sufficient just to point out the failing of the person. You don't have to hit them. <laughs> knock them down and bite them. Mm -hmm. Just don't bite them. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, the point I'm trying to get to is, you know, after a while you start receiving Holy Communion and it's not just that you, you're not biting them anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, you, you really do start to have a sympathy even for people who just disgruntle, you know, mm -hmm. they, you just get around them and you go, run for cover. But you can, all of a sudden, you get like the Lord's own vision of that person. You begin to see them, you know, in their needs. You begin to understand them as the Lord, not as the Lord does, but a semblance of how the Lord understands that person. And it really does make a difference. It's very transformative and it causes in its wake a kind of peace. Right. And so um, that's how I can, I mean, I think Holy Communion helps me just to keep in check my hypercritical and impatient nature, which is still pretty bad, but mm -hmm. um, it's much less <laughs> bad uh, than it was quite a while back. So let's just say that. <laughs> so you highly recommend it, obviously. Uh, I recommend it, and like I said, you won't be disappointed because really it, you know, it does alter your personality. Right. And it doesn't just bring peace, it brings a sense of joy as well. Right. It's one of the great benefits of working at EW10 for people to be able to go to Mass easily every day. Yeah. Um, and uh, the friars have a Mass at noon for the employees, so that's always great. Uh, now, you also make uh, the point here that perhaps the best way of conveying this idea of the transformative effects has the models of St. Francis de Sales and Blessed John Henry Newman. And, and I know uh, Bishop Sheen used yeah. to talk about this all the two time, that oh, uh, yeah. heart speaking directly to heart, right? Explain that. Exactly. Well, you know, that's uh, exactly, um, you know, this great, one of our great saints, um, 
uh, it used to be named Edith Stein, now St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross. But mm -hmm. Edith Stein was a very fine philosopher herself. And she, in a book of essays on women, wrote an essay on empathy. But it pertains just as much to men as it pertains to women. Empathy is transformative. And I'll tell you, it, you know, when you start really empathizing with somebody, it is a force beyond what we can describe in physical terms. You know, you're not going to get a, uh, you, maybe you get an elevation in a brain reading or something, but empathy really is a force. It's a transformative force. Mm -hmm. And when you start empathizing with the person and understanding that person and sympathizing with uh, not only their weaknesses, but also you begin to see the true mystery of their being and, and the depth, uh, you know, of, of, you know, this precious creation that is confronting you, and you enter into a unity with that person, the force of empathy is, it enables you to do the good for the other um, just as easily as if it were doing the good for yourself. And where, as before, without that empathy, you would have been running for the hills. Right? This would have been a person who irritated you, or a person who you didn't want to deal with, or a person who's constantly busting your chops or being disagreeable. And all of a sudden, you find yourself um, you know, uh, being able to, to work with them, not only with respect, but with a kind of love. Uh, and that, that force of empathy, I'll tell you, that the Holy Eucharist you know, gives us a strength of empathy. And I think there's even this implication in Edith Stein's work, mm -hmm. uh, this, um, by the way, this little essay on empathy, that the Eucharist is something that, that not only is the empathy between Christ and ourselves, mm -hmm. but the empathy also for other people who are loved by Christ and are part of his mystical body and people who are beyond Right, his mystical, who, who are not quite there, um, you know, in the church yet, who have not been baptized, but the empathy extends uh, to, as Mother Teresa would say, to everybody. You can't, they're almost irresistible, even if they're lying uh, on the streets of India with maggots all over them and fingernails this long. And you look at them, and they are almost irresistible through the eyes of Christ. Empathy can be that transformative, and I think um, that Einstein gets it pretty, mm. pretty clearly and closely. She's uh, and Saint Teresa of Avila too. She's there's something in that woman. Mm. Uh, but all that Carmelite tradition. Uh, shout out to the Carmelites here, mm. boy. Those Carmelite sisters and Carmelite saints, they really get it. It's mm. profound. Okay. You also talk about uh, something uh, you tell, with respect to the fourth gift of the Holy Eucharist, unity with the mystical body. St. Paul taught that we all unite in the mystical body of Christ. You were kind of talking a little bit about that. If one member suffers, uh -huh. all suffers together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you, now you are the body of Christ mm -hmm. and individual mem individually members of it. And that's from 1 Corinthians. Explain. That's right. Well, we're tying our uh, fate, as it were. We're tying our being, ourselves, to a much, much bigger body. And so it's not just us self-reflectively looking out after number one, 
all right? Uh, and when we get baptized and then we begin to receive Holy Communion again and again, that bond of being in the mystical body of Christ strengthens. And so our identity of caring for the church and caring for the individual members of the church and our collective, right, no man is an island, everyone a part of the main, uh, the old John Donne poem, right? The idea for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for all of us, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when somebody dies. And so the idea uh, that, you know, you know, when we receive Holy Communion, it's strengthening this connection to not only the communion of saints, it's almost like we mm -hmm. have this appreciation for the sacredness of the ages, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes when I'm saying Mass, honestly, celebrating Mass, honestly, you know, I just get this sense of, you know, I'm with all these other wonderful good people saying Mass through this, you know, thousands of years of the church. It's almost like this fleeting, almost, well, mystical moment, I mm -hmm. guess I'd call it. Uh, you know, and and where you're just in unity with all of them. Well, that part certainly strengthens. But in addition to that, you get another part that is strengthened, and that is strengthening uh, the bond with all the other, not so much the saints already in heaven uh, part, but the uh, uh, people who are part of the church right now, the people who are have who have their needs, the people who are struggling, and that just gets me. Mm -hmm. You know, as I, you know, look around, I, you know, it gets me all fired up, as I would say. You know, I remember when I was thinking about uh, the Jesuits when I was uh, in college, uh, my mm -hmm. senior year of college, and uh, Father O'Leary gave me the autobiography of St. Ignatius of Loyola to read. And then as I was reading that autobiography, I began to think, wow, you know, this is it for me. And then I read another book that said, you know, the three questions of the Majus. Uh, the Majus means the even more. Mm -hmm. The, you know, go to the next uh, level, you know, of, uh, you know, the kingdom and the next level of faith and the next. So, uh, you know, he says, question number one, what's the greatest universal need? Um, you know, and the second question, is anybody else doing it? And the third question is, if nobody else is doing it, do you have some capacity to do it? And if so, get going. <laughs> and uh, I like this guy. <laughs> you know, the, the you know the Jesuits are the place for me. Uh, you know, and and the reason is is because it's it goes back to this mystical body. You've got such a dev, uh, you know an identity with that church body and the individual people that you meet, like your parishioners or the young people I would meet at, in my college classes or, you know, um, now today, you know, the, the people I meet in my various ministries. The, the, the thing is, the it's not just plain empathy. It is now an empathy that is fortified and strengthened by the mystical body in which I'm immersed. Mm -hmm. And so I do have a genuine concern, not just you know, for their well-being. I have a concern for their salvation. I have a concern for when they're struggling and they're wandering in the darkness. And of course, I have a great deal of, you know, it, the, it, the identity is so strong, you know, as, um, uh, you know, St. Ignatius would say, or maybe even as Padre Pio would say, or of course, St. Teresa of Avila. It's so strong, you can't stand the thought 
that this person is going in the wrong direction. And of course, you want to become the hovering priest like the hovering parent, right? You want to, uh, you know, make sure that they don't go off the deep end or something. Right. Or you want to just say, I've got 10 things I need you to hear right now. And of course, you know, it's Spitzer, shut up. You know, so I mean, the, the, the point though is, I do, you know, think that this comes from Holy Communion. Right. You just can't help it. Your concern, not just with their embodiment and well-being, though certainly that, you are also concerned with their soul, their salvation, their struggles, their psyche, their um, their moments of despair, and their moments of hope. Right. And that Ex is, absolutely. you know, the Eucharist is just and that's, poignantly. And that's why it's important. just firing with, it up. Right. And that's why it's important <laughs> when we end this show that you give us your blessing on the way out the door, if you would. <laughs> I got that. I got it. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord, who has given us his own body and blood, his own mystical body, into which we can be unified and be unified with all the members of it. May the Lord, who gives us this love, this healing love, and this forgiving love, and this love that protects us from evil, continue to fortify you you through every time you receive Holy Communion with them unto your salvation and the salvation of those you touch in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next week. Don't forget Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are available through our religious catalog. As always, next week's show will continue on the Holy Eucharist and, of course, this weekend's EWTN bookmark, three great books by Father Jeffrey Kirby including one on sanctifying them in truth. And also, join us tomorrow, Thursday, May 11th, for the big pro-life event in Canada. The day begins with the National Mass for Life from the Notre Dame Cathedral in Ottawa, followed by the National March for Life live from Parliament Hill in Ottawa. Kevin Dunn and his team will be there. That's Ontario, Canada. Coverage begins at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. Check out EWTN.com for events and times in your area. It's a must-see. We cover it every year for our great fans in Canada. I'm Doug Keck. We'll all see you next time in Father Spitzer's Universe. Be well. <laughs>